Welcome to Mormon Visual Culture, a podcast presented by the Zion Art Society and hosted by me, Micah Christensen. In this podcast, we discuss with prominent artists, collectors, curators, and scholars artwork that has inspired them and shaped LDS culture. This week, we are very pleased to have a conversation with Howard Lyon. Howard is one of those artists who uh, he spans various genres and has been successful in every one of them, from his work in computer graphics and gaming to becoming a prominent artist within the fantasy community where he does international conferences and uh, travels regularly to meet his fan base and someone who's done work for the church in temples and whose works can be found reproduced in many of the church's major publications and uh, venues. Finally, he started a new phase of his work where he's doing figurative work that is... um, Well, we'll discuss it. It's been winning international awards and gotten attention for its high quality and for values that harken back to the 19th century, though I don't want to make it sound like it's old-fashioned. There's something definitely new and fresh about it. We talk about Howard's biography, how he came to um, be successful in all of those genres, and uh, talk about where he's going to next. So with that... Enjoy the conversation that I had with uh, Howard Lyon. Well, welcome, Howard Lyon. We're so grateful to have you here. Thank you. You've been on my hit list for a long time, <laughs> and I think I've I've uh, subconsciously avoided having a conversation with you because this is biased revelation time. <laughs> because we're such good friends. I mean, we go fishing. We talk all the we time. We don't live that yeah. far away from one another. And uh, there's a there's a part of me that even though I know that this is not a journalistic enterprise by any means that uh, I want to make sure that I'm not spending too much time with people that I just like. <laughs> but it's going to come across, so I might as well reveal it at the very beginning, I right? I love it. That's fantastic. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's not just that I like you, of course, and I wanted to, to put that out there in the beginning, that we're good friends. But it's, uh, you know, you, you represent in this community um, an artist who plays on several fronts and plays at a very high level on several fronts. You recently were awarded the top prize at the Springville Museum of Art Spring Salon. Uh, we'll, t- we'll talk about that. You uh, are traveling the world for your participation in the um, now magic. Give me the full title of what so it's called. It's called Magic the Gathering. It's Magic by the Gathering. Of the Coast. For yeah. which a long time you have been an artist for yeah. that and uh, have a completely different audience. Um, maybe there's a Venn diagram where that audience and and the other crosses, and then on. On, in addition to that, you have um, you've been someone whose work has been commissioned for temples, and uh, or and, and has been displayed in various temples, and uh, it's it's rare I think that an artist um, has been successful to so many different audiences and plays on a very high level. And I want to get to every one of those audiences. Um, but first, I just want to do a shout out here. You, uh, this this last couple of weeks, they've announced the results of the um, Art Renewal Center's salon for 2018, yeah. right? Right. And and this is, for those who don't know, um, this is the largest representational art competition in the world. Um, 
over 10,000 artists submit to it as far if that's from what I know, because I know some of the judges. And how many works are you allowed to submit to these? You know, I, I don't know if there's a cap on the works. It's, you know, whatever you you want to pay to I, enter. I know that as so many, some people have submitted as many as eight, nine, yeah, 10. Yeah. And that being the case, in 10,000 artists, there are tens of thousands of works that are submitted to this. And one of your works was accepted. I was thrilled for that. Yeah. Art Art Renewal, I've admired what they've been doing on their website for a long time. And Fred Ross, who uh, um, I think is the organizer behind the Yeah, and the his daughter Kara, who's kind of taken over over the years. That's right. Um, they, I feel like in a lot of ways they have touched on what I admire in art and what I aspire to with my own work. And and I've I've been lucky with that contest. I've I've been a finalist a couple times and yeah. um they've that's been good. So I was thrilled to get a piece in again. Oh, uh, it's such a big deal. It's such a big deal. I don't think we talk about it enough. Um and I'm I'm thrilled for you. Okay, so so this is something I would like to talk about. You are part of a generation of artists that I it's fair to say um you know, there is a talented group of people that came out of BYU at about the same time. Who were some of your classmates when you went to BYU? You studied in the art department on the illustration side? That's right. Who were some of your classmates? So Joseph Bricky was in my class, and Dave McClellan was in my class, and I just admired the heck out of both of those guys. Uh-huh. Uh, Joseph's running the Beaux-Arts Academy in Provo now, mm-hmm. and uh, Dave McClellan, he works at um, Warner Brothers in Salt Lake and, and has continued to work digitally um, for Warner Brothers, but he comes to my studio regularly on Wednesday nights and does portrait painting, and he's one of the best around and, and yet it's not his yes. full-time vocation. He's amazing. So what is what is it about that time that you went to BYU? You know, I think that, um, one, we had, some, we had some really exciting teachers. Uh, Robert Barrett, who's been a mainstay at BYU, is just an excellent teacher and very supportive. I think now he's at Southern Utah University, I think, right? Well, or am I wrong? He's still at BYU. Both? Yeah, okay. Robert, st- Bob's still at BYU. He's retiring this year, actually. Hmm. Um. And then we had uh, Richard Hull, very supportive, really great. Don Siegmiller was there. Um, Don was uh, very impactful on me. In what uh, way? He, um, Don was so skilled, so proficient with the brush and painting the figure and fabric. Um, we, we clicked um, as a teacher-student and then became friends as well. And uh Having someone who can paint at the level that he did say, yeah, I believe in what you're doing and, and where you're going um, is so beneficial, uh, especially to a student, as you're just struggling to figure out how to paint, to have someone say, yeah, you know, you're, you're on the right track um, is, a, is of a huge benefit. And then Ralph Barksdale was there, too. I don't know of anything about Ra- Ralph Barksdale. Ralph was a real character. Um, he lives in Arizona, um, is, and uh, I think his health hasn't been great in the last bit, but he's in Kingman, Arizona, I believe. That's the last that I heard. And um, Ralph did a lot of like fashion illustration hmm. and a lot of work in gouache. And he just he had a humor about him and a knowledge base for sketching and, and hitting the gesture that was really wonderful. Uh, very again, a very supportive teacher that just said, um, "Yeah, stay on this track and keep doing what you're doing and work hard." And he, he, 
I think because he had worked so many years as a professional illustrator, he had he made us aware of the work ethic that we needed, I believe. And a lot of us had the drive, but just having that awareness of, you know, forget the 40-hour work week. You know, this is something that you love and be prepared to work really hard when you do it. And, and uh, he just kind of established kind of a work ethic and from his experience that was, was um, maybe eye-opening but also beneficial to know what was ahead. Yeah, there's there's this notion of artists walking around with uh, mustaches and berets like bohemians. Yeah, who are in the 19th century, they're drinking absinthe. I don't know at BYU, right. you're <laughs> drinking diet coke right. and and uh, hanging out, listening to, listening to uh, to poetry readings. <laughs> yeah, right. That's right. And and uh, and, and uh, it, it it seems like something about you and Joseph, who I know fairly well, is you have about as regular and as taxing as a work schedule. As as anybody with a nine to five job, and and uh, it it seems like that's what it takes. It takes that to succeed as an artist. It it's I'm lucky that it's something that I love to do. I think about sometimes when I finish a painting and I've been really pushing in a marathon on it, and I finish yeah. and I think, oh, all right, I'm done. Now what I want to do? Oh, I want to paint this. <laughs> you know, and it's like there's not even a like, oh, I should go. I don't know, pick up a new hobby or something like that. I just, I love what I do. There's this, uh, and I think I've talked about this before, but there's this uh, this notion that people always have this apocalyptic warning to artists at some point in their career of, if you can do anything else other than art, right. go do it. Which I really, I don't like that mentality because <laughs> it's this notion that there's something so... It, art is it, art is such a painful and terrible experience right. as a career that um, that only do it as as a as a as a career of last resort, <laughs> right? Right. But that doesn't seem the attitude that you've had with your work. And did, did you yeah. is that did anybody ever? Um, well, you know what? Let me let me back that up a little bit. When did you first show signs of being an artist and having an interest in it? You know, it's fairly distinct memory, actually. It was when I was 12. And I had started playing Dungeons and Dragons and seeing the artwork that was in the books. And I didn't actually play D&D all that much. We'd get together as a group and I'd say, hang on, I want to draw my character. Hmm. And I'd do my character portrait. And then I'd draw the other people's portraits. And then I'd draw the monsters that we were going to encounter, you know, while we were playing. And probably drove my friends crazy because most of the time I was there drawing and like, okay, you guys start, and then I'll, you know, catch up like, it's or your, It's your turn, Howard. Go. Yeah, yeah, right. Let me oh, finish this. Let yeah, finish. I'm working on this. <laughs> and there, a realization came to me, I think, that um, I could make a living doing this because here were artists, their art was in these books, you know, doing these fantasy drawings. And, and some of them weren't even very good. They were good to me as a, you know, 11-year-old kid. And then at 12, I saw, I forget where I saw the technique where you put a grid over a photo and then you copy it with the grid on your paper. And it's a really wonderful tool. You're using like onion paper. They don't use that term now. It's a, it's kind of like a wax transparency paper thing. Yeah. Right? Well, yeah. In, in this case, it was just like, I just gridded a photo and then on my just regular drawing paper, put a pencil grid huh. and then... You look at the grid and you've basically broken it down into like one inch squares. So rather than trying to tackle the proportions of the whole thing, you can do it one inch at a time. And I did that and it turned out 
far better than I expected it to. You know, and, and is this you laboring in your room? Yeah. On on like sunny summer days? Yes. Yeah. In Arizona? Right. Yeah. I just, I would, I don't know how, I was not a patient kid, but somehow I had the patience to sit and draw for five or six hours at a time. Interesting. Yeah. Did you, did your, did your parents encourage it? They did. Yeah. My parents were amazing. So 12 and I, I tell my parents, I, I want to be an artist. This is what I want to do. And I've told this story before, but, um, my mom, she still teaches preschool. She's amazing. She's taught for 50 years, I think. So she's got a real affinity for kids. You yes, have to be to she teach does. that long. Yeah, she absolutely loves it. She will teach until, you know, she's in the grave. She hmm. absolutely loves it. And one of her students' dad was an artist. And she said, well, let's go to a studio and you can see what it's like to be an artist. Hmm. Went to the studio and... There were some really beautiful works of art. There was some uh, Western art, hmm. uh, some religious art. Um, there was a painting of uh, Simeon holding the baby, and it was Greg Olson. It was Greg Olson. Yeah, he What's lived the in age Arizona at between the time. you two. I don't. You know, I don't know. I don't know how old Greg is. I was twelve at the time, and this was just before Greg kind of hit it big. It's before he moved to Provo. That's right. So it, yeah. So this would have been like. Uh, Late 80s? Yeah, yeah, 75. Okay, 75. Yeah. That's when it would have been. Right. Okay. Late 80s, he moved to... You know, maybe... I've got to work oh, oh, no, on no, his sorry. timeline. I said seven, 85. 85. 85. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, I, I almost aged yeah, myself you're not, 10 Yeah, you're 10 right years there. older. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was born 73, so this was 85. Okay. And um, he was awesome. He treated me like I was his equal. And, just, oh, you're an artist as well. You know, I mean, it was like that kind of a conversation. Hmm. And, uh, excuse me, um, just made me believe, you know, that kids, you're going to make it, you know, do this as a, as a career. And so I have a real gratitude towards Greg. <laughs> you know, so it, it's so amazing that, uh, yes, it was, it was before he really hit it. But how often do you have in proximity, even as a kid, someone who's doing for a living the kind of thing that is that rare, right? right? And in a variety that he was doing it. Yeah, and right? he had... So for you to, to be able to meet somebody who was doing this on a practical level. Right. Absolutely. I saw he had fantasy paintings there. He had this beautiful giant tree with these kids you know, playing in the tree and the tree's impossibly huge and, um, you know, some real imaginative pieces. And then his, some of the Western art, which I think still is some of Greg's best work is some of the Western art that he did. It's amazing. I've never it's seen like his Western on art. On the order of like James Bama level kind of realism, hmm. um, really tight, uh, gorgeous works. It's interesting because once an artist becomes known for one thing, a lot yeah. of their other things get crowded out. And that's right. a side of, of, uh, Greg Olson, I would like to, I would like to see, and I think would surprise a lot of people. I think so too. Have you stayed in touch with him? I, I have. I, I don't see Greg often. Yeah. Um, I think Shari and I went and had Shari's dinner. your wife. Shari's my wife, an artist in her own respect. Yeah, and yeah. We'll get her here too. Excellent. But uh, so you yeah. two, sorry, we, interrupted we went, though. No, we went to dinner with Sid and Greg. Sid is Greg's wife. Um, about a year and a half ago, but mm -hmm. I think that's the last time that that I saw him. I believe he just moved recently. Up to Heber Midway. So are you two, is this encounter with him something that was ongoing? 
at the time? It was just something that you continued to have a relationship? You know, I saw him, I met him when I was 12, and then I probably didn't see him again till maybe I was 17 or 18. And then I would, then I saw him uh, every month or so when I was at BYU. So why BYU? Um, tradition. Yeah. was definitely part of it. You know, a lot of my family had gone there. My grandma went to the uh, Brigham Young Institute. It wasn't that what it was called, the, you know, before it was BYU. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so there was, there was definitely a lot of tradition there. I was from Arizona, and ASU absolutely didn't have what I wanted. Did you know that department. you wanted to do art? Yes. Yeah, for and sure. So you're, so you're kind of looking at BYU, and you're looking at, the illustri- at, at their, the their illustration program. Yeah. Why did you look at the illustration program and not the art studio program? Did it exist as a separate thing at the time? It had yes it was there was the art program the fine art program and then when i was at byu i was in the visual design program what does that mean so it was visual design encompassed graphic design industrial design and illustration so why did you why did you choose that i went and saw what they were doing in the fine art program at byu and could tell that it wasn't what i wanted i wanted something with a little more rigor in the training and um, the illustration department, I could look at the teachers and the work that they were doing, mm-hmm. and um, it was much closer to what I wanted to do. So there's this um, this kind of generalization that can be negative on both sides of what the arts with the with the fine art side versus the illustration side, and I use those terms really loosely too, right? Because yeah. this isn't exact distinction. But if you're on the fine art side, you think, oh, the illustration people aren't thinkers. They're just right. uh, they're just they're just basically learning craft. They might as well be photographers, right? right. Doing because they're copying by hand what photography can do. And from the perspective of people who, on the art design side, who are or, or the illustration side, looking at the fine art side, it's uh, those guys aren't learning any practical skills. They're just talking about art, right? And and uh, and I think that you know both are unfair characterizations because both sure. are doing a different kind of thinking, right? Right. So you're learning a lot of theory on the fine art side, um, and philosophy and thinking and experimentation, but you're also doing a lot of theory and experimentation. It's just a different kind, but there, there, but there's, there's very, there's, there's a huge gap in between how the artists who come out of either program think about themselves and about how their art training was and what the benefits of it were and what they didn't did or didn't miss out on, on the other side. Right. I found Going into school, I wanted to learn. I wanted to learn the craft and then apply the idea. Yeah. Rather than learn the idea of art and then struggle with the craft. Yeah. I had before I went into BYU. So this is before the internet, obviously, <coughs> and before like the easy access to everything that we can access now. I had, I got my hands on a copy of the Bouguereau exhibition catalog from Montreal. What? It was like 1984 um, that this, it went to the, I think it was in the Petit Palais and the Dorsey and then um, went to Montreal. That's such an obscure thing to get. Right? It, and yeah. I don't... And I, why, did you know who Bouguereau was? I did. I How? had a teacher at Mesa Community College. When I was in high school, I started taking some classes at MCC and I was lucky to have one teacher in particular... His name was uh, Jim Garrison, and man, he could draw. 
really wonderful life drawing teacher, anatomy. And he had... Are you working from models yes. at this time? Yeah. Nude, clothed? Nude. Male so, and female, everything? Yeah. My, Interesting. Yeah, my parents were awesome because so, I was 16 and yeah. they let me start taking life drawing classes at the local community college. So even at a very young age, you're working on a very practical anatomical level. Yeah, I again, lucky with the teachers that I had and the parents because had I not, had they not like one supported and then the teachers kind of had this you know training that they provided i didn't know that that was the way you train to become an artist yeah i just figured i'd keep drawing every day and then i'd get better but it was you apply some rigor to it and you apply structure to Mm. it and then you see a lot more progress so i walk into his office and there's a print of nymphs and satyr on the wall from Mm. bougaro and oh, what like it blew my mind. Who is this artist? I'd never seen his work before, hmm. and um, he had the catalog. So I went to the library. I looked through the catalog, and this is incredible. I have to get my hands on this book, and it was going for like five hundred dollars at the time. Oh yeah, they and were. In, it was. In, it's insane what those catalogs even yeah, go for now. Crazy. And I actually placed calls to bookstores. Do you have this book? Pre-internet and, era. Pre-internet. Yeah. There's a rotary phone, you know. You're um, dialing Montreal. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Do you just, have this book? Yes, we Howard Lyon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, managed to get one sent from another library to the local library. And I just poured over it. I photocopied the whole book so that I'd had copies Did you copy of it. from it? Um, I did, yeah. Interesting. It. I, it's the closest I've come to stealing something. I thought long and hard about not returning it to the library and just paying the fine, like whatever it is. I wanted that book so bad. You know, there's bad. that you could have so used bad. that Picasso saying, if great artists don't copy, they steal. Yeah, Even yeah. the library books Even that the they library. copy. From. <laughs> I, did, I came very close and I thought, well, surely the library wouldn't charge me the $500 or whatever. You it, know. But I can imagine that, I mean, Bougaro was so out of fashion. And oh, yeah. it's for a lot of people still is. Right. I can imagine getting to BYU, and me, is there a coterie of people there who think you, you immediately feel like there's a like-minded group? Yes. Uh, certainly Joseph Bricky. Well, that's funny because Dave McClellan, who I said, called Joseph Joe Bougaro and called me Howard Pyle. <laughs> Which was a fun... Howard Pyle, the great illustrator, American illustrator, who, wasn't he a student of Jerome? Um do you know what? That's a great question. I, I should out. know the answer to I that. I should know the answer to that, too. Yeah, but he yeah. did study in France, came back to America, and... And then became, like, profoundly he, nationalistic in that yeah. illustrators need to study here and stay here. Yeah, and he was and so, he was the founder of the American School of Illustration that yeah, led to Rockwell and... Unbelievable. And, and, and C. Wyeth and Harvey everybody else. Harvey Dunn, who trained Arnold Freeberg. That's right. And, and Harvey Dunn... Harvey Dunn also trained Norman Rockwell. Yes, yeah. and Gittins... Oh, I didn't know and that he trained Robert Gittins. Robert Barrett studied with Alvin Gittins, so and so I, I have that in my lineage. You've got that your, I your love. artistic genealogy yes, back to, really, to pile. That's and, kind of fun. That's pretty cool. So uh, this this is coming full circle. So you asked me about why choosing illustration over fine art. Yeah. So the story about Bouguereau led me to this book, and in that book there was a quote, and I I will have to paraphrase. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it said. Basically, Bouguereau saying, if you don't learn craft when you are young, you will not have the patience as an old man to learn it. Holy cow. And so telling his students, 
forget style and forget concept now, learn the craft, because as you grow older, you won't, you won't be able to. Okay, so you and I are going to have to have a, an entire discussion about this another time. But I want to I highlight it because it seems like Bouguereau was largely out of favor, even in his own lifetime, with academics who thought he was anti-intellectual, mm. even though his work was undoubtedly like beautifully crafted and everybody admired right. it. And I did my master's on Soroya, and he was part of my PhD thesis. And Soroya famously said when he entered the academy after he'd made all his success— he said, grammar is for old men, not for young men, mm. because you, by teaching young men grammar and craft, you squash their flame of creativity. Interesting. So here you have these two diametrically right. opposed ideas, right? Um, you've got one, and, and I would imagine that this is also the divide of the illustration and the fine arts studio program, right? Is you've got one that says, learn, learn in, 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 uh, in Bougro's words, craft, and Soroya's words, the vocabulary or grammar when you're young and and then get the ideas later and then the 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 the, the fine art studio program saying get your ideas and figure out who you are first and then you can add craft afterwards right and i think that you could find people who that's worked for on either side absolutely right yeah but for you it was very clear what you wanted to learn in the beginning right i did i i felt like i want to really refine my skills it still is one of the things that drives me every day in the studio is how can i improve what am i doing i think okay this is what i want to paint this is the message i want to convey how am i going to going to improve today like those are the three things mm. that i feel like were always always in my mind when i'm in the studio and it's a real drive for me, I don't know if it's a a competitiveness like with myself, or um, feeling just kind of that inadequacy as an artist. You know, mm. wanting to bring everything up. I see, I look at some art from the 19th century that I feel is more craft than idea, and I admire it. And then I see some works in the 20th century that are clearly more idea than craft. Sometimes the artist doesn't even execute it himself. It's so much about the idea. Mm -hmm. I want to have both if I can. Hmm. You know, I want I want my work to have meaning, but I also believe that I also believe that skill is a form of communication. And we acknowledge that in all of the other arts. You know, we we look at an actor, it's not just merely reading the words, but We're there's musicians. skill and how they do it. And certainly with musician, I mean we want there's a reason Yo-Yo Ma stands out and Paul Tortelli is stand out as cellists above the others is because they, they practice with great skill and then they can convey an idea with more surety and more ability than they would be able to otherwise. So even now while you're working on things, are you hard on yourself? Yeah. You, you seem very mellow to people who know you um, on a casual level, I think. Right. But, um, you know, even from my observation, you seem like someone who is who is a, a harsh taskmaster, not necessarily with others, but on yourself. Yeah, I uh, I am. I, I think a lot of artists are, you know, where we're hard on ourselves. But um, I have talked to other artists that are content with where their skills are at and skilled artists, you know, that do a great job. But I've had conversations. So what are you doing to get better? Hmm. hasn't crossed my mind you know the, and I found that interesting that's not a 
that's not a a judgment you know i because they're doing wonderful work and it's their work is very consistent you know maybe yeah. over the last 15 years it's hard to tell where chronologically a piece might fall interesting but i hope i hope that my last piece will be my best interesting you know i don't know if that's a reasonable expectation but uh, well you know i certainly hear things like uh leconte stewart who is a a landscape painter that I'm, I'm sure you, um, you and a yeah. lot of listeners will be familiar with. He um, he famously he painted from the late um, teens, nineteen teens, <laughs> up until the early 1990s. So there's about 80 years. Yeah. It feels like that he was he was working, and he always said that the best work he ever did was in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, even though he painted for thir- for like 40 or 50 years after that. And I, I want to sit him down and talk with him because that really bums me out. Right. <laughs> that that bums I, me out to I, hear it. I'm like, think, okay, that better not be the case for yeah. me. Yeah. And then you hear people, it seemed like for a long time that there were people like Titian, who scholars, who became in the, at the very end of his life, much more monochromatic, restricted in his palette right. and um, more broad in his strokes. And he painted up until his 70s or 80s, depending on how you, you know, count his age. We don't really know how old he was when he died because they're differing birth dates. But he lived for a long time, painted for a long time. And some people always attribute it to him just losing his powers of observation mm. and his eyesight and his 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 motor skills. Right. But then other people have, I think, successfully argued that he becomes more expressive and is doing more with less as time goes on. And they can both be true, right? right? That he can, he can have fewer motor skills, but doing more with those skills than he was when he was younger. And I just, you know, I, I love that idea of just getting better over time and always pushing yourself, but it can also, it can wear on you, can make it hard, especially when I don't think this is necessary. And maybe I'm jumping ahead here. But you live in a pretty remarkable, we live in a remarkable community of artists yes. who there seems to be a real fraternity and competition existing at the same time. Right. Is that your experience? I, it's heavier on the fraternity than yeah. it is the competition. And there's, there's kind of a neat, neat diversity among the artists in this community that... Um, like there's not many of us that paint like each other. And so I think it makes it very natural to coexist, support each other, cheer each other on and not feel like we're stepping on each other's toes at all. I don't know if that would be a problem if we all painted similar anyways, because with the people, but I think it helps, you know, and, and there's things that like with Casey Childs, there's so much that he lives only a couple blocks blocks away from super close. Um, and Mary Sauer, like both of their work, they don't paint like I do. And I yeah. love the way they paint. Absolutely love and it. And you all know one another and you all spend time together. It, and it's awesome. Uh, uh, Janet e. Eggleston is right there by uh, Casey. Like she yeah. lives like a minute from Casey. Hmm. And she she might be most similar in terms of how she paints. She's studying with Bill Whitaker right now. You know, if I were to... If I were to... Uh, Oh, it's so hard to do this when you're when you're so close to it, but you almost want to do this as a tra- as a trained artist story, and yeah. I always want, almost want to do this. There's this. I was just in 
I was just in, in Los Angeles for the uh, College Art Association, and everybody just gorges on art while they're there. They go to every museum and everybody's presentation, and you see these misattributed paintings that say things like School of Caravaggio, mm. right? And and in art history, you've got this, uh, you've got these distinctions that you make. If you were to go in increasingly concentric circles around an artist, you would say um, Caravaggio, attributed to Caravaggio, studio of Caravaggio, circle of Caravaggio, follower of Caravaggio, school of Caravaggio, after Caravaggio, style of Caravaggio, right? So this is those are eight circles that I was able to name of going from Caravaggio himself out until somebody that's way out there. And I wonder if you were to say in our time there, we have thousands of artists, we have dozens of very successful artists, both in our community and successful on an international level like you. And I don't know how much I could say of artists who are friends with you or around you, school of Howard Lyon, school hmm. of Casey Childs, um, follower of so-and-so. Right. Because it's it's um, it's not like we're, we're, you're not all painting together. Some of you even go to each other's um, life sessions. Right. But it it is it's something that I think fifty years from now will be interesting to look back on, and say how it, maybe these guys look more similar than I thought, or right. no, really, like the diversity is just mind boggling. Well, I'm hoping that I I hope that the diversity will be recognized, but also the influence on each other. Yeah. Um, you know, our friend Brian Taylor, Brian Mark Taylor, we've done... got to say his general authority name. That's Brian right. Mark Taylor, yeah, all three th- names. <laughs> Brian Mark Taylor. He, um, he is an artistic general authority, that's for sure. <laughs> he, um, like... I World famous plein air artist. Yeah, amazing artist. Um, some fantastic landscape work. And then he started to do some sci-fi, you know, a little bit of fantasy, but real heavy sci-fi work that's wonderful he's yeah. already making a big mark in that in that world um he went to a LuxCon, which is a big sci-fi fantasy convention in pennsylvania you were there too right? and yeah went there with him and uh, he did so well just so this fantastic. is this is something i want to get to and i i, I want to touch on it briefly but i, I feel because i want to also i want to talk about your temple work but first i feel like we need to we need to bring up because a lot of artists you know they they struggle to find their career, right. and you were lucky enough when you were in college. I think that you landed a pretty good job. Yes, right. What was your job? I started working for a company called Sapphire in the video game industry, and the first job. It's so strange looking back on it. What they had me do, they were making a football game, and they needed color portraits painted digitally of every single NFL football player. Okay, so what technology are you working with? Because you don't have a bamboo sketch pad, or do you? So we had, no, well, we did have pressure-sensitive stylus okay. to work with, and I forget the name of the company, but, man, they were primitive compared to Is what we Is it like a, a step above MS Paint at the time? It, it was a step above, <laughs> but it was early Photoshop. I think it was Photoshop version 3, and then we had fractal... Was it Fractal Painter? Fractal Painter version two. And they're on like 18, and it's been Meta Creations bought it in Corel and that. So it was very early software. I mean, it was buggy. Are you um, making a, a living wage at this? Yeah, actually, I was, I made ridiculous money at first because they didn't really know how to price it. Yeah. And they had 
I'll back up real quick. I grew up with technology. My dad was the department chair of technology at Mesa Community College. We uh. had, I, I helped build a 286 computer. So we you're had basically everything. like the Steve Jobs or Bill Gates of the artistic yeah. tech, tech, tech world. I definitely came in with some real knowledge on the okay. digital side. And, and I remember having a few classes where the, the teachers were like, I want you to do something digitally. And I was like, Okay. Yeah, it's like <laughs> child's play for Yeah, you. that's no big deal uh, because I'd cut my teeth on it with my dad. So um, they were paying like 50 bucks a portrait hmm. to do these little tiny digital portraits. And artists were taking like three hours to do them. And I came in and I ended up doing like eight an hour. Like taking the black and white and converting them over. You're the and you're the digital robber baron of yes of, of art right. portraits. And that lasted for about a month. Yeah, and then they put me on salary because they realized it's They're just like, cheaper this, to. Yeah, this is dumb. I mean, it's not like you were doing harm to them because you're because yeah, you're this doing was the uh, rate they had budgeted for. Yeah, and they figured out this is what we need to pay in order to make our own money on it. Right. Wow. And and you become. A salaried person when a lot of your classmates who are graduates from the pro graduates from the program are probably still trying to figure out what am I going to do to make yeah, how ends meet. Oh, great. I'm an artist now. You know, how am I going to make a living doing this? Did you keep And I assume that in your mind, there may have been some kind of psychic um, um, uh, 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 friction on doing digital art and video game work and at the same time maintaining this this high notion of of fine art with a capital F and capital A. Right. How did, did you feel that same, that psychic? I really did. It, you know, when and I And do you look back now and have more patience with yourself? I do. I do because I recognize the skills that I built in that time period. I feel yeah. like I really became, I really started to understand color by working digitally. Much faster than I did. At least understanding imaginative color. Like learning color harmonies and developing them out of my head versus learning from nature. Now, I re well, I reached a point in my career where I, I realized that I needed to study more from nature. Um, but combining those two, I feel lucky. That's interesting because most, um, and I think that's worth really um, lingering on for a second because you have some, if you were to go back to the curriculum of the academy, even back to the Renaissance, um, one of the central planks was was color, and and composition. They were often done um, as as an idealized, deliberate, not looking at nature focus. Right, right. It's this idea that you need to understand how things work together in tone, in light, in contrast, and those skills um, can be messed up if you're if you're copying from life. Right. Sometimes. Right. Sometimes right? you become too locked into the observable and and dismiss, I think, the imaginative. How did that career then lead to your work in fantasy art? You know, it I look at the path and I thought I was just gonna work in video games while I was in college. It was a great way to earn money, pay for college. Um Shari and I lived well. Um I was able to buy the gear that I wanted, you know, the photography gear and that, which was film mm -hmm. at the time. And it are you developing your own nuts. photos? Or are you going yeah, down I had to Inkley's? my own dark room. Really? Yeah. So you're really learning a, a, an arsenal. Yeah, yeah. I just black and white photo development, and I was able to get real creative with it. Um, but it still would cost, you know, 
a dollar a pitcher. Oh yeah. You know, to And you're not taking the thousands of pitchers now. No, you're no. taking dozens and maybe hundreds. Yeah, yeah. I'm, you know, thinking about each pitcher and in that and now it's a lot easier to okay, I'm gonna take twenty pictures of the hand and of the foot and, you know, really get information that I need when I work from from photography. So I thought I would do that for a little while and then um I worked it was like, well this is good money. I don't want to dismiss this. So I kept working there for a couple of years, and then uh, we were expecting first baby. And then it's like, okay, we have a baby. I want insurance. We moved back down to Arizona, and I started a company there. And then they moved me to be art director. And so it was an increase in pay. And it became easy. It became very comfortable doing that. The next step for me in the game industry was to start my own studio. And so I did that. Um, my brother and I started a studio, and we kind of had a focus on very high-end kids' games. So you're, are you originating the games yourself, or are you yes. waiting for people? Okay, you are. Yeah. In my company, we invented the games from the ground up, and I okay. had a few really talented friends. There were four of us initially. Interesting. A programmer, an animator, a modeler, and myself doing concept and, and How are you monetizing work. this? Are you selling it directly to game companies? Yeah. So we sold it to Atari. And Atari published it. Uh, our first game, it was called Professor Fogg's Workshop, and it was a game I about... I played that. Are you kidding? I'm not kidding. That's Holy awesome. Holy cow. Yeah, it uh, <laughs> It was... Disney said it was one of the top five games of the year that we oh made, gosh. and our goal was to make it... Like, what if Pixar made a video game for kids? That was kind of our, like, our unwritten mission statement. Oh my gosh. And then Atari, the inside brand at Atari... Uh, company called Humongous, which was a brand within it, said, we're not giving up shelf space to this game because uh, it was at Walmart. You know, you, they would buy shelf space and a box had took up so much space. And so they killed it. Captured so, and killed it. Yep. That's what they did. Yep. And so then <clears throat> we made another game and had another publisher that we wanted to do. And we ended up doing four games over the space of a couple years. And we were getting ready to start our fifth game in 9-11 happened. Oh, boy. And funding just dried up. Every, there was no money to go around anywhere. And so we all just said, okay, let's take what money we do have and give it back to the investors and call it good. And we did that. And so I moved to another game company, hmm. started working for them, and they got purchased and moved to Austin. And I said, well, I'm, I'm done. You're like, done. I'm done with this industry. Jeez, this must have been a difficult many. time. It w it was, um, but it was exciting too. Why was it exciting? Because I felt like I was gathering more control over my career than I had ever had before. I started to realize that these game companies, I was at the mercy of the market. I was at the mercy of investors and publishers. You know, to do a game that was received so well, and then just have a publisher go, done. That sounds like like you're you're explaining a kind of Buddhist enlightenment, like you've, yeah. you've ex experienced right. sudden enlightenment like from a koan, where you're just like, hey, I realize that... Th and most people would say, disaster after disaster right. after disaster, and instead you're having increased awareness all along the way. It really kind of was. You know, <clears throat> this feeling of like, well, if I... The last company that I worked for... And it doesn't sound like it's disasters, by the way. No, no, no. It just sounds like it's industry shifts that are affecting your yeah. skills, which are very highly developed, but your skills are at the mercy of these larger forces. Completely. Yeah. And in, in it's what... I, I loved working in games, and I hated working in games. I had too many days where I'd come in, 
and go home 30 hours later. Hmm. I had a couple 38-hour workdays. And then I read about someone in Japan that died after working for like 42 hours. It was like, this, this is crazy. I can't, this isn't for me. The company got purchased, moved to Austin, and then I started freelancing. And it's, I, it, this, this is the point where I came full circle because I started doing work for Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> and that was what made me want to Did you just cold call them or did they yeah. call you? You cold yeah, called them? I, had, I think I had one finished illustration and some concept work that I had done and I emailed. And this is the early 2000s. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Emailed. That's, yeah, exactly right. I had to think for a second. Emailed Wizards of the Coast, Paizo Publishing, two companies that both did D&D work and started doing work for them. And I think I did 300 illustrations. Now, hold on a second because... Look, you're a trained artist. You've been in video games, right? And you've been doing art um, um, on a professional level in that field. But I got to say, you've been in the fantasy world and successfully in the fantasy world for a while. And you know how many people are trying to get into that funnel of making art for some of the biggest publishers that are out there. And Dungeons and Dragons, I imagine everyone of a generation who thinks they have some artistic skill sent their stuff. <laughs> to Dungeons and Dragons saying, please hire me. But there can only be a couple James Gurneys and Howard Lyons out there who are really who are really getting paid for it. Right? You know, it <clears throat> it's interesting as like as D D has grown, they've definitely been able to employ more artists. Um but uh, But it's not thousands. It's no, probably no, yeah. dozens. Yeah. Yeah, it at any given time, that's probably right. And I'm just guessing. I don't know the right. world very well. Correct me if I'm wrong in any no, of this, right? No, that's probably true for D&D. Magic the Gathering, which came later, um, at I would say at any time they're probably employing 120 artists or so. Did they headhunt you for Magic the Gathering from D&D? No. Um, I'm talking in this vocab like I know everything. Right, yeah. But right, I don't. It's so kind gotta, of... I, had done, I haven't used the word vocab. You see how cool yeah, I was? Nice. I like it. <laughs> it's, that's... Artists don't understand vocabulary. It's all feeling. And um, I had I went to an event called Gen Con in Indianapolis, and okay. I was signing there that for short a for? book. Um, uh, that's a great. That's a great question. Sorry, it's tangent. Mike, a tangent. Gen Con is. Um, I'm really curious now. I've always just called it Gen Con, but they've always they're a convention that's very much focused on tabletop gaming. Okay. Um, you know, where you're interactive right there. And so D and D's big there and, and a lot of these fun table games. And so I was there signing for a book that I had done the cover for. Hmm. And the guy sitting next to me, Mark Tadine, really wonderful guy. He was one of the original artists on Magic the Gathering starting in nineteen ninety-two. I've maybe at any the the my best line was maybe three or four people. At the most, you know, people wanting me to sign. And they didn't know who I was. They just, they bought the book and they wanted it signed. So yeah. it could have been anyone in that chair. Mark sitting next to me also did work for the same project. He has a line 100 people long. Wow. And yet they're getting magic cards signed by him. And, you know, for those who don't know, what is what is Magic the Gathering? Right. It's a game. Um, it's a trading card game where... You're there and you're playing in person. Um, it's uh, people collect the cards for the game and they build decks and then they compete against other people with those decks. And it's a very deep 
there's complex an, game. And there's an international following. You were just in London for a convention. Yep. They flew you out and you were signing the whole and you're meeting fans who know your artwork in, in individually Which and just crazy. And you're going to Madrid next week to Madrid do the same next thing. Next week we go to Seattle and Chiba, and, Japan. And, and what is it about your work in magic? If you had to describe your work in magic, first mm. of all, I want, okay, two questions. Describe your work in magic. And number two, describe what makes you different from other magic artists. Oh, uh, yeah. So magic is, I think what makes it unique for fantasy artists is the guidelines that they give you are a little bit looser than a lot of other uh, work. I've done some work for like World of Warcraft. In World of Warcraft, it was like, Paint it to look like this. This is the armor. This is how many spikes are on the armor, that sort of thing. It, you, you stick to it. It's like if you draw Mickey Mouse. Yeah. It needs to look like Sounds Mickey like Mouse. Sounds like a Wagner opera libretto where they just tell you how many steps people are taking and all of that stuff. I love that you just made a simile to opera as I'm talking about <laughs> World of Warcraft. This is, this is what it's like hanging out with Micah. That's fantastic. So it's exactly like... I was thinking the same thing. I just didn't vocalize it, but... Um, with magic, you have a lot of freedom and you look at the artists that have done work for it. And there's a lot of diversity. You have artists working in watercolor and mixed media in oils, digital, mostly digital. It's probably the um, attraction as an artist and as a fan, right? Yeah. That you can do so much and it, you, That's exactly right. <clears throat> there's, there's so much diversity and expression of the artist as an individual there which is unique for a brand that big. I mean, it makes more money for Hasbro than the Transformers movies have. Oh, my heavens. Yeah, I mean, it's giant. Um, I think huh. there's something like 40 million players playing around the world. It's a huge game. How many things have you done for them? I think I've done about 130 illustrations for them, 130 and, paintings. And do they... Do they do you do them as digital paintings? Do you do them as oil paintings? Do you do them as a mix? What do you do? I used to do them digitally. And in the last couple of years, I've started to do them in oils because the fan base for them, they now own companies and have disposable income. This the total. And so they want to buy the original. They want to buy them, and the market's gotten really great for them. It's fascinating. Yeah, there are there's there's it's become very worthwhile for artists to work traditionally. So I could spend hours talking about this world because it really is fascinating, but I, I want to get to the, to another side, which maybe is, is not another side. Maybe it's just the same skills and, and, and imaginative, uh, uh work yeah. that goes into your religious art. So were right. you doing religious art all along? No, I started doing, well, do you want me to answer the <clears throat> second part of your other question? Oh, yes, 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 yeah. yes. I'm so sorry. So what Let's makes my back. work different yeah. from a lot of other magic artists? Um, I don't know that I'm totally unique in this, but my love for fine art, my love for Caravaggio, my love for so Bouguereau, that sort of you're thing. You're bringing in the, 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 uh, the, the, the whole host of the pantheon of old masters yes, when you're doing it. And I've, I've done magic cards that are a very obvious homage to Michelangelo. I have one where there's an angel reaching towards a fallen soldier, and it looks like God breathing life into Adam. From the Sistine. Do people know that you're making these references? Yeah, some do. Some be like, that's the Sistine Chapel, you know, that you're doing. And I, I do them as an excuse to really study a painting I love in depth. I, I see somebody doing a master's thesis on this in the future, mm -hmm. a fantasy art and its relationship to the old masters. There's that's definitely artists out there who rely <clears throat> on that, that love and that experience. Um, 
So as I have one, I have one, this might be my favorite that I've done. There's the Caravaggio's road, uh, Emmaus painting mm-hmm. and the wonderful figure on the side who's all his arms are foreshortened. You know, he's We're talking the, the supper of Emmaus where yeah. they're where in they're in wide surprises they recognize the Christ figure they've been yes. walking with and eating all along. And I have my version of it and it has these horned creatures at a tavern, you know, eating a meal and it's set up exactly based on that composition so that I could study it and you, see what makes it tick. You need to send me um your right. uh your uh, um, your uh, uh, your image, so we can put that up okay. with this with this podcast. But it does it does beg a question that's kind of interesting. Of, and I think you know I've been doing this lecture series, and you've been coming and participating. We've been having conversations, and we were talking. I think about um, uh, Dante's illustrations is done by some artist. I can't remember who we were talking about at the time. Yes. It was, I think, Erica our, Eric our music, who's okay, who's a right. who's yeah, a, you showed several of them. Yeah, and and uh, you made the point that because somebody I said, you know, here it is, here's a canonical text, Dante's Inferno being done, and how many people are going to look at this contemporary artist's work and be able to relate to it as part of the canon? You jumped in and you said, now we're at a point where more people have read Lord of the Rings, right? And who and they also are drawing this this uh, very deep, thoughtful discussion. I mean, there are courses taught on on the Lord of the Rings right. and on uh, what do they call it? The simulacrum, Cimmerillion. That and and uh, it's this notion that uh, um, and look, Brian Mark Taylor is calling us right now in the nice. middle of this thing. I'll, I'll have to give him a call back. Um, but it's this idea that that. The distinctions that people used to make between pop culture and high culture are not as clean as they used to be. Yeah. I think that's fair to say. Absolutely. I mean, Tolkien's works to me are literature. And you look at the paintings by like Ted Naismith and Donato Giancola. And I think that they are going to stand out just like Waterhouse's paintings from Tennyson do. And, you know, painting Lady of Shalott. Tennyson could have been considered on some level pop culture. I know sure. someone's going to dispute that as me right, saying right, that. but but you know how do you take the song of Hiawatha by um, by Longfellow and then say oh that was that was that was pop culture or high culture at the time right it's 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 interesting because you you then make and so that's that that is an important distinction though as we're talking about you doing religious art. Because maybe, like I said, there isn't that huge of a distinction in the skills that are required or the thinking required to make them. But the audience is certainly different. Audience is very different. I joke that my costumes were the same. I still had men with beards and robes and staffs, you know, going from (laughs) wizards to painting apostles. Um, I think when I made that transition, so that was in, where are we? Uh, That was in 2009, that I said, I feel like I can offer something more with my artwork, and I wanted to do religious artwork. And in the back of my mind, I was always remembering walking into Greg's studio and seeing his religious work. And I remember as a 12-year-old being moved by it, hmm. that, um, that there was something there that was beyond what my words could express. You know, there was a resonance with it that 
that I find when I'm when I'm in the presence of I think things that are created for a sacred intent. So what was the first thing you did? Uh, I my first religious work that I did was a big piece. I decided I'm just going to go for it. And it was uh, my painting called From Fear to Faith, and it's Christ. He's in the boat. He's raising his hand and he's calming the storms. And it was 50 inches by 80 inches. Whoa, that's like, huge. Yeah, it's a big painting for me. Biggest had you ever painted? I'd, it was not the biggest even thing? close. I think the biggest work I had done up till then was a 24 by 36 inch painting, and I didn't even finish it. What on earth was your thinking about where it would go and who would take it? So, Or was it just for you? You didn't even have a destination. I didn't have a specific destination for it, but my brother Grant and his wife Jill... Um, we had talked about me wanting to make the switch. And he said, well, I'll be your patron for a few of these paintings. And he's well off enough that he could help that he was like, yeah, in the beginning. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Does he have it? He, he did have it, and he donated it to the MTC in Provo. So it hangs now right next to the big map in the main hallway in the MTC. When you yeah. look at it now, what do you think about it as your first attempt? Um, I'm, I'm still proud of it as a work. But um, I know I could paint the figure so much better now than even that I did nine years ago. So Are you going to disguise yourself as a janitor and show go up? Go and, and start working on it? Yeah, you know, like <laughs> someone shows up the next day. Who, who solved this equation? You know, it would be like goodwill hunting in the MTC. Um, I had, I back up a little bit on that because I had begun to work digitally so much that I lost my confidence working traditionally. Really? Yeah, I was. I did not feel like it was something that I could do. So I decided I I need to change this, and so I took two classes. Where I t I took two classes at at a couple different places. One was called the Illustration Master Class, and that was back in Amherst, Massachusetts. You and flew out there. Yeah. Who's teaching it? James Gurney, Donato Giancola. Big deal, yeah. and another big deal. Uh, Don Dos, uh, Dan Dos Santos, who's a good friend of mine. Very wonderful illustrator. Um, Boris Vallejo and Julie Bell were there. Julie Bell just won like in five categories or something on Art Renewal Center. Um, and uh, Rebecca Guy was is there. I didn't, I didn't get to work with her very much, but I did with Donato and Gurney and Dando Santos. How long were you there? Um, it was just a week. Did you feel like you were getting back on a bicycle, you knew how to ride it, or did it feel like yes. this is a completely different thing? Here's what was so illuminating for me is as soon as I just sat and watched them paint, I felt like, oh, I can do that. That's just like digital. The principles are exactly the same. Interesting. It's just learning how to work with this sticky mud on the end of a stick instead of having an undo button. So the skills were there all along. It was there. And, and you had experimented with that when you were younger anyway. Yes, I did. I had painted in oils when I was at BYU. Um, so I wasn't like totally unfamiliar with it. I had just lost that, like, I don't know. I didn't feel the confidence that I could work traditionally the way I could. Do confidence is such a big part of doing yeah. anything creative. It really isn't it? is. It's a huge part of it. Yeah. And you said you did something else too. And that's why, yes, I did. That's why I believe learning the skills first. Mm -hmm. is important because it gives you the confidence to chase after the big ideas. Interesting. So the second thing I did, so that was in June. Then I came back home, and then I went to New York and studied at the Grand Central, at the time, Academy, for a month. Who was in charge at the time? Um, I don't know who was in charge. Was Jacob but Collins I studied teaching with, there? And... I don't, in the summer program, I don't think so. I studied with Scott Waddell, who is 
he's like a physicist who also paints. Yeah. And it was kind of funny. I, I laughed in the class because Scott would talk with such a high level of vocabulary in his class. And I think only a third of the class were native English speakers. And I'd look around and think, one of the girls happened to be from Norway, and I speak Norwegian, went there on my mission. And I'm thinking, how is she getting this? Yeah. Like, but wonderful class. And Scott is like, he's a machine when he paints. If you've on Instagram, if you've seen his, I've seen his video, work, you know, and just like his, the paintings just unfold before your eyes. And then I, then I got a kidney infection. What? Yeah. And it was awful. Oh, it was awful. It was so painful. And while bad. you're in New York. While I'm in New York. And so I missed half of my class with Colleen Berry and Will St. John, which still makes me sad because Colleen Berry, I think, is one of the most talented artists painting today. She can draw like nobody else, and her paintings are spectacular. Um, but I still got three days with Colleen and Will. So... You know, we're, we've been talking, for those who are wonks, they're going to recognize a lot of these names. Yeah. Because these are big deal names. Right. And and I and I kind of wonder as you're talking, I'm thinking, is there, you know, I, I want to be careful to phrase it because I don't want to force it, force the, 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 the idea of it. And, and, well, is there... Is there a spiritual reason for doing this? Is there a reason why you're moving on to religious art? Is there something that, you know, in your life, how old are you at this point? And and where are you, like, right. mentally? <laughs> right, right. So let's see. That is um, nine years ago. Yeah. So 35. And things were going really well in my fantasy career. Like, just... I had just, I'd been doing uh, work for magic for a few years. Yeah, why do something else, and, right? Right. And um, it was it was like a career change because totally different client base, totally different people to paint for. Yeah. And, um, but I, we just felt like we needed to do it. And so that's why I did that first painting. It was titled From Fear to Faith. And it's about oh, living so it was... life with faith rather than fear. Fear of what if I don't earn any money? What if no one likes the work that I'm doing? You know, what if it takes me 15 years to build this into something that is going to be profitable and worthwhile? And all of those concerns. And fortunately, Shari, my wife, is adventurous and was just like, let's do it. You know, I feel good about this. Let's do it. I got to say that it, it almost would have to be a spiritual mandate for yeah. me or for anyone to do that kind of thing because if, if i were playing devil's advocate let's say that howard lyon came to me and said to me in 2009 that was about the year and right and yeah. said i'm thinking about doing uh, lds art and getting into the lds art market i would have said you got a successful thing going right right and i would have said you know mormons are kind of weird <laughs> and the art market's really weird and kind of frugal yeah and they're really frugal and i mean you know the i mean just to give you an example the uh average cost of a wedding outside of mormondom is like 26 to fifty thousand right. dollars and inside mormondom it's you know three to five thousand dollars right <laughs> you know you're getting paid well don't you maybe this don't, is an arena that's not move. worth winning yeah, yeah. right right so you'd almost have, and, and you're not the only one who I've heard make this. It's Jeff Hine yeah, gave yeah. up his career in representation at galleries on either coast. And it seems like um, that's a real leap of faith. That is from, from fear to faith. Yeah, yeah. 
it. Do you regret it? Do you? <laughs> no, no, you don't. Yeah. I know you don't. No, I this don't. is why I ask. Yeah, it. yeah. I, I really don't. It, uh, it has added a richness to my life that I didn't have before. Did you? Um, did people, as you're doing works, where did your work start showing up? Because um, this large piece it went to your brother. Your right. first few commissions probably went to people that you knew already. Yes. At what point do you start picking up steam and getting a little bit more recognition? And were people like? Who's this Howard Lyon guy? And you said, right. hey, guys, I, I know all of you. Right. Yeah. I've known all of you for a long yeah, time. I admire what you're doing. And <laughs> yeah. um, it, um, it, the downside of working in kind of this LDS market is that it is kind of funny and strange. The upside of it is, is if you can get your work there, it instantly goes out to everyone. Where is there? Where were you? Deseret Book and the Ensign. So are you just going to, uh, you're submitting them? Yes. So approaching, tracking down emails. And this is where Shari really came in. Because Shari is, is, she could make her career as a publicist. Yeah, and she's, she's done a lot of this kind of work. And, and she's an artist in her own right, but she's got business yeah. skills up the wazoo. So right? Shari had, Shari has a master's degree in holistic nutrition, and she had a wellness coaching career that she had been doing, working with doctors and that. And she said, I can see what you need. And she quit. And just started doing, managing me. Wow. In, in what I was doing. So um, she made it so much easier making that transition because she helped, helped us get into doors that often take le just legwork, you know, just yeah. going and finding out the right people to contact and what to do and, and letting me paint while she answers emails. You need pursues. someone like that. Oh, you yeah. have to have something because you just... You can't so do it helpful. on your own. It's it really is. A, a, you have to be knocking on doors. You have to get in front of people, right. and that takes a lot of time and tenacity. And it's it's funny in this market in particular. If you can say that you've been in desert, there's like the Shari calls it the Trinity. If you can be in Deseret Book, in the Ensign, in in a temple, well then you've made it as an LDS artist in the eyes of the consumers. Yeah, you know, like I, because those are the three questions, we and people get can get cynical, cynical about that, but it really is, right. and they're all entirely separate bureaucracies that you're dealing yes, with. Yes, they are, and they're also not entirely always interested in talent. They're interested in who they know, and so it can be hard to break into it. it can be even if you're very yeah. talented. You're te you you have a, a baptismal font. Yes, that you did. A large Arizona in the Gilbert Arizona Temple. Now, I want to. We've we've maybe got ten minutes left, and I want to hit this. I know this is an unfair amount of time to talk about it, in, but I want to talk about that commission. What it was like to do right. a commission in the Gilbert Arizona, and then I want to talk about um, these new works that you're doing that are fine art that are no longer. Um, they're not religious necessarily, right. and they're not for a, a a particular fantasy crowd. Right. But they're fine art almost in a nineteenth century God word um Tissot kind of uh kind of work. We'll get to uh, we wanna I want to cover that last. Gilbert, Arizona, how did that happen? I had And that's your home turf, right? That is. Yeah. At the time we were I'm from Mesa, Arizona, and at the time we were living in Queen Creek, which um we were there as the temple was being built. And um the doing the murals as we look back on it there were like six like conduits that all contributed to me getting that commission we had people like my my 
other brother's boss was it was a general authority that had something to do with that temple being built. And then we had other friends who, like all of these ties and connections that was strange. And then the, the keystone of that was Shari being tenacious and finding out how do you do work for temples? How do you get something like this, you know, an opportunity? And the reason that I was aware of it was because of Joseph Bricky doing the baptistry for the temple in Denmark. Yeah. And knowing, one, how difficult that was for him and how it almost in Joseph's words, ended his career from a, an emotional, mental standpoint of every th- everything that he went through on that. Joseph, I hope that's not too personal to share. He told me about doing that project and feeling like so he finished it, but it was so traumatic, everything that he had to do for it and the hoops to jump through and the challenges of it and feeling like, I don't want to do this anymore. And mm. then he went to the Sistine Chapel and saw what Michelangelo had done. Yeah, and it was like, and he's a great yeah. Joseph is a great um, student of the past. Yeah, it, Joseph's um, amazing. And so, well, he, what advice did he give you? You know, he just he just made me aware of like this can be really tricky. You know, this can be really difficult to do. I and, love that it wasn't a sense of competition either. That's great that you know. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. That it would, he didn't feel like he was a pie, right? right? That of. Oh, you you got so much of this now. I can't do as much. Sure, yeah. So it, I, I interrupted them. No, no. We've been very. I our my relo- relationship with Joseph has always been one of synergy and, and support, and yeah. and that's someone we do paint a lot of like. We have the same loves or a lot of very similar loves, but um, uh, we've been artistic brothers for a long time. So these are huge. How big are these things? So th- these, compared to what Joseph did in Denmark, they're miniatures. Okay. But for me, they were huge. They're four feet by 15 feet. Four feet by 15 and feet. And there were two of them. One depicted the baptism of Christ, and the other one was Christ on the Sermon on the And they the go on either side of the, bapti- of yes. the baptismal font yeah, that's in the temple. The so they've, they've got them, in, they've got them um, installed in walls. Yes. And you probably had to submit all along the way, um, progress drawings and conceptual drawings, and you're working with a decorator? Yes. Yeah, Bruce Edwards was the decorator. You know, it's interesting. They give you zero direction as to what they want, or at least at the time. They said, we want two paintings, and this is these are the dimensions. So I submitted landscapes. I didn't know they would take figurative work. Hmm. And I submitted these landscapes, and about four months went by, and I assumed I didn't get it. And I call him up and I said, hey, thanks for having me submit. I assume I, I never heard anything from you, but I assume I didn't get it. It's a very frustrating process for those who are involved. It kind in of it. is. Yeah, yeah. 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 And um, they said, um, oh, no, why did you submit landscapes? Aren't you a figurative artist? And <laughs> I said, well, I, 15 minutes after I submitted them, that would have been a great email to receive. You yeah. know, And they said, if you can get us some new pieces... Um, Tomorrow, oh my gosh! In in we we'd love you to submit again. So I I put together these two figurative sketches, hundred and six figures between the two of them, and sent them in. Did you just use stuff you had around? No, I I drew from imagination, you oh know, just sketched them out from imagination digitally, which was unusual for them. They like getting oil paintings. They like getting oil paintings because they don't have to explain that this artist. When they're digital, they don't have to explain, yeah. like, don't worry, these will be As they send it up the chain, they don't right. want to... It, it yeah. requires less description. Right. But I ended up getting the commission. 
And I told them I need 10 months to do these. And they said, well, you can have eight. And so... Was it enough? um, It was just enough. So you you were barely pushing up against it. I was working six days a week, as many hours as I could stay awake. Really? For that time period. I didn't do anything else. I and you're, and you're stretching it. You've got them in your away. studio stretched out. Got them in my studio. Um, I built big two by four heavy frames for it. My dad built me a new easel just to support it that I could move up and down and make all of these, you know, make it as easy as possible to work on these. Um, and uh, I did the first one in five months and I did the second one in three months. And the first one had less figures. Hmm. The, the second one I was kind Is it because you got a pace down? Yes. Yeah. Realized kind of how I needed to work. How many... Um, do you look back now? Would you want to do it again? Yeah, I would. Interesting. Yeah. It was a real challenge. And I've, I've done a couple other things for the church that um, it didn't go as well. These went really smooth. I had no hiccups. I, in fact, I submitted my sketches. And the first time someone came to check on me, to make sure I was spending the money on what I said I was, mm-hmm. was when I was done with the first one and almost done with the second one. Do you feel differently about that work than you do other works just because it's in a temple? Yeah, I do. Um, it's It was very special, especially that temple, because my kids were just getting old enough to really attend the temple meaningfully as doing baptisms. And my they're all in the paintings. And so my kids were able to go and be in the baptistry and really feel part of that temple. And they'll be part of that temple, whatever they choose in their life, whatever path they walk, they're in that temple. Wow. And that's a really, what a gift, you know, to have as a parent. It's a beautiful way of looking at it. And so, um, Hmm. yeah, you know, it, I'm as grateful about that, I think, is any other opportunity that I've had in my life. We'd laugh because I went from literally painting dragons one day and then the next day painting for the temple. Like I finished you know, somebody, up a fantasy commission and went right into Somebody like Albrecht Durer would not see that as being yeah. a transition of any right. great or significance. Or Raphael, who's yeah. doing... You know, they, would, they would see it, um, or, you know, El Greco, or any yeah. of these guys who were doing... They considered this platonic idea, the, the, uh, the notion that they were painting is coming from a, a source that was not necessarily observable in nature, but coming from things that were informed by nature, but really right. from like a third party source. They yeah. would say God, some of them would, Plato wouldn't have said God, he would have said truth. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's interesting that, cause I, I mean, I, I think for, for somebody who's doing fantasy art, it's a distinct, origin point that are, that gets you at the same place of arrival as many of the old masters mm. and in and, and their same source of how they were coming up with art. You know, I know we're running down on time, but I want to mention before we go, you won top place, um, the, the first prize in the Spring Salon. And for those who don't know, the Springville Museum of Art Spring Salon is a cutthroat competition. <laughs> I've judged it before. It's not just regional. It's something where artists from all around the country and, you know, back even in the 1920s when it was founded, I think it was maybe even earlier in the 1920s, you had artists from New York who were submitting. Even now, you have artists from all over the country who are submitting. And they're some of the best contemporary figurative artists who are working and representational artists and and artists from all different kinds of genres. 
and your work of a woman lounging. Um, uh, how did you describe that work? We're going to put an image up. What is it titled, first of all? It's called After the Dance. After the Dance. Which isn't terribly descriptive of what it depicts, but it speaks to the idea behind behind the piece. But yeah, there's a woman and she's wearing um, a kind of a, a classical dress, you know, a Greek dress. To me, it looks like an imp- a, 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 a an English Olympian yeah. style. An Olympian artist would be people like Alfred Moore, um, John William Godward, Lawrence Alma Tatama, um, I, I, uh, Layton, Frederick yeah. Layton, all of these figures who it's, you know, these are some of my favorites, but they are famously chromatic, very colorful, um, and very adept at their figurative arts, at their fig- at their figures. So to try and take them on or be somebody who's looking at them, I don't know if you're taking them on directly, but looking at their style and knowing that your your viewers who are at least informed would be right. looking at that style, that's comparing yourself to some pretty... <laughs> Some pretty heavy stuff, but you succeeded in it. And I'm I'm saying that not just as your friend, but when I looked at it and mm. Vern Swanson, who did the catalog resumes of Godward and Almatadama, looked at it, blown away. Mm. Blown away by it. But it seems like it's a different genre from your religious art and your fantasy art. The borrows on skills from them. There's a Venn right. diagram somewhere where there's a right, crossover. What's going on? What are yeah. you doing? <laughs> what is this turn in the road? It um, is I, it a turn in the road? It is, and it's a deliberate one. And I feel like it represents more than anything that I've done. My artistic loves, and after the dance is very much meant to be a statement of what I fell in love with when I really came to adore art. And so you look at that piece, and the orange fabric is Flaming June. The, the green, by Frederick Layton, which Frederick is in the Layton. museum in Puerto Rico. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. It's so good. And her dress and her hair represents Tatima for me. The little mother of pearl plate is uh, Cabanel in the front Alexandra of it. Alexandra Cabanel. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, the... Um, the tripods burning incense are Godward and Tatama again, and uh, Waterhouse, who I love, right of that. You know, Waterhouse has the witch in the circle that I think the magic circle Cersei, with yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of artists represented in there subtly, you know, but. Oh, yeah, I wouldn't look at them and think it. any of them yeah. were derivative at all. Yeah. It didn't look derivative yeah, to me. Yeah, none of the imagery necessarily is derived. It's It's more of the taking iconography from their paintings and saying, I want to draw upon it. And, but then the, the painting itself, after the dance, the dance was 19th century art. And that's what it refers to. And we are, this is a whole nother hour discussion, but what happened to it? You know, what happened to neoclassical art and classical art and that academic art that was lifted up in the salons when we entered the 20th century and came upon abstract expressionism and, and all of the art movements. It was the art of the 20th century, in my opinion, didn't build upon the 19th century. It took a step to the side. It planted a whole new tree and, and went off in a completely different direction than what we had in the 19th century, whereas the 19th century was a growth for four or five centuries forward to arrive where it did. And I feel like we're now starting to get back to where we're now 
new branches are growing on that tree and we're growing and learning from the past in a way that I don't think we did in the last hundred years. That's interesting um, and hopeful. It's a very hopeful analysis. It is to me. Because one of these things that, you know, I'm, I've got very mixed feelings about resurrecting a and and uh, the 19th century yeah. and a hope for the 19th century art cuz i see pe- I, I see the 19th century as being unattainable in the level of and maybe undesirable in some level we're never going to be able to create what the 19th century did institutionally right. again. Different environment. You know, the, the Cold War of the 19th right. century was the culture war. Yeah. Instead of investing in nuclear warheads, cultures were investing in artistic treasures in a way that we'll never do again, right? right. Maybe. And, and it had good consequences and had bad consequences. But I don't think we're ever going to have, in our multicultural society, and maybe it isn't desirable, um, a kind of canonical institutional force right. that has that teaches level to the same level of of ar- of arsenal skill right? right at the same time that's squashed like soroya said if we're taking this conversation full yeah. circle it squashed impressionism which found its own route outside of the institution right. it squashed a lot of artistic freedom and then led to this group of 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 artists that for two or three generations their effort was to dismantle the, the academy and that skill base. And now we're in a time where the people who dismantled the 19th century are now the institution that is being dismantled again. You know, and it's and so it's it all comes full circle right. in its own way. It all it all it's it's a it's a cycle. It's a pendulum that's swinging back and forth. And on some level, I see that. I know this is Micah and not me interviewing you. This is a discussion. This is a conversation between <laughs> friends now. But I was at, a, at an auction where the same Chinese buyer that bought a Mogdaliani for a record price bought an Alma Tatama oh, for a record fantastic. price. And Vern Swanson, who was there, turned to me and said, that's the moment. Right. He said, that's the turning of the century. Now, Tatama and Mogdaliani are old masters. Excellent. To the person who's buying them. Right. And I think it's it's interesting because there was in that Chinese buyer's mind, he was no longer thinking of the old debates. Right? That we all keep circulating. Right. And I and after the dance, it's I didn't know that that's what the title of it was. Oh yeah. It's a brilliant idea because it it we are that we'll never get back to that dance in the same on the right. same terms that I we agree. did, but it doesn't and mean I don't that think some, we need to. That's it, and that's an important right. sentiment. Yeah, I I want to acknowledge my ties to the past. I don't want to sever them. No. I want to acknowledge them in my artwork and hopefully move forward, standing on their shoulders just like they stood on the shoulders of of the artists that came before them. That was the program. That was the plan that that would happen. Yeah. It wasn't. I. It's interesting. I've had reactions when I've talked to people about it, or saying like, "Well, looking to the past like that, it's it's counterproductive." I said, "Are you kidding me?" Hmm. It was that mentality that got us Rubens, yeah. that got us these great artists from the past, is that they would look and build upon what came yeah. before them, not destroy it. No, and they weren't slavishly copying. No. They were just using it as yeah. as fodder for their next for their stuff. So take it and innovate from it. But 
You said something to me before we walked in about you wanted somebody to look at a piece of work. And you like you look at a work right. of art. One of these paintings that you're working on now. And say what? So I when I was the example that I was using was Bernini. Yeah. When I was in the Borghese Gallery standing there looking at Apollo and Daphne and Proserpina and Pluto, I felt elevated as a human being that it wasn't some mere animal that created this. This was greater than something that is just a product of happenstance could create. And it, to me, it was evidence of the divine when I looked at Bernini's sculpture, feeling like this, to me, we should feel better as a human race that one of us could create something like this. And... It, yeah. The, my takeaway from that is skill itself is a communication tool. Yeah, you can't divorce the how something's done from from its fruit, from what it is. Right. In the end. And and I feel like I that hasn't been the case always in the last hundred years. There's been no. a movement for de-skilling and in a movement to take that out of it and make it more about the idea. Well, I want it to be about both. Yeah. I want, that's my hope with my artwork is that people can take an idea from it, but they can also feel some communication as fellow human with the skill hopefully exhibited in the work, you know, and we admire that in so many other fields. Yeah. And what's, what's interesting about these latest works is that, regardless of my skill level, I think I could walk away with something from it. It's not, or even my culture, it's not, mm. they're not particularly grounded in a religious idea. Sure. They're not particularly grounded in a, um, in a, in, in, in a, in a time or a skill set that is, that is frozen into one place. I mean, there's some, I don't see anybody who's doing work like this right now. And I'd love to put my critic hat on at some point and write more about them. And I plan to, but I, I think that, I and mean, we'll put images of them up. We've got one here that's quite beautiful that we won't have time to go into. <laughs> but it's this, it's this, I think it's, it's another example of you moving and pushing yourself. I just can't wait to see what you do next. Well, I appreciate it. It's just it. amazing. I'm, I'm, I am looking, I've got 12 pieces planned in this particular series. Yeah. And I'm excited to see where they go. But Micah, you're awesome. Howard, you're awesome too. I'm so grateful you came. And then we got to sit down and talk. I feel, it feels like a selfish experience for me to be able to sit here and do it under the auspices of a uh, of, of, of a podcast. Wait. But uh, let's go to lunch. Let's go All get right. something Sounds to eat. Sounds good. <laughs> Thanks, go Howard. Talk about Howard Lyon. Food and fly fishing. Let's do it. <laughs> I would like to thank Howard Lyon for joining us for this edition of Mormon Visual Culture. You can see many of the works we discussed on zionartsociety.org under the podcast tab. For more interviews with artists, collectors, scholars, and curators, subscribe to Mormon Visual Culture on iTunes. I'm Micah Christensen. Thank you for listening.